We're going back to Mark chapter 10 this morning. And there is a story there that kind of prompts me to ask an unusual question, I guess. So what would the ideal sort of guy look like and be like for my daughter to bring home and say, we're going to get married, you know, introduced to the parents? And I think, you know, he would be a guy, obviously, first off, that loves her, uh, that treats her like a princess, that cares uh, deeply about my daughter. Um, he'd be a guy that's committed to the Lord, if I'm talking about the ideal, someone that loves the Lord very much, knows the Word of God, uh, someone that makes decisions in life based on that relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, if I'm talking about the ideal guy for her to bring home, yeah, he'd be financially secure. He'd be someone who's either uh, making good money now or the prospects are good in the near future uh, that he will be uh, financially secure, independent. Uh, just a conscientious person that cares about the big things and doesn't care as much about the little things in life. That's, that's the kind of person he'd be. I, I mean, ideally, it would be a person of influence. Um, the young man would be someone who is interested in influencing for good uh, people and situations around him. That would be the kind of person, and it's exactly the kind of person, really, that we encounter here in Mark chapter 10, the kind of guy that you would like for your daughter to bring home and introduce you to, uh, the kind of guy that you would probably be very comfortable taking care of your financial portfolio, the kind of guy that if he were running for office, you would be likely to vote for this kind of guy. I mean, just an all-around good guy, sharp guy, high character, uh, young guy as well, we're told in the Gospels. Uh, Luke tells us he is an archon, that's a Greek word, just meaning he's a natural leader. Um, people listened. When he walked into the room, people got kind of quiet and wondered what he was going to do. People cared about what he thought and about what he said. And, and money, he had business savvy. Uh, he had made lots of money. We are told he, uh, in Matthew, we're told he was a man of great wealth, young and really wealthy, okay? So what can I tell you? Great guy. Um, uh, just checks all the boxes if you were looking for someone for your daughter to bring home, right? Um, well, he seeks out Jesus. I'll put this as another mark in his favor. He seeks out Jesus in Mark chapter 10. Uh, and when he does, the apostles, I mean, they're kind of like, whoa, check this guy out. I mean, we know who this guy is, this young leader. They're kind of straightening their hair and getting their, you know, tunics ironed and everything to look good for this guy. They want to make a good impression. People want to make a good impression on this guy. Um, and so this wealthy, young, let's say, entrepreneur, we find him coming to Jesus in Mark chapter 10 and, and seeking out the ministry that they are a part of. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. Now, to be brutally honest, the people... <laughs> I mean, just honest here. The people that usually sought Jesus out, let's say they were less successful, all right? Um, they were more takers, not givers. They were, the people that usually sought Jesus out had a lot of problems, right? Um, and here's this guy seeking Jesus out. Wealthy, successful, all-around good guy, influential, young. I mean, what a blessing someone like this could be to that young ministry. I mean, what preacher wouldn't be drooling over the prospects of adding someone of this caliber to the church roster? And so the apostles, they had to just be salivating over the potential here of adding someone like this. And to top it off, Jesus says to the man something he very rarely said. He, he says, why don't you come follow me? He actually invites him to be part of this group uh, that's following him around on his ministry tour. But shockingly... Jesus would make a demand. He would make a condition on the man, and it was something 
so strong, so radical, so sweeping, so off-putting, let's say, that instead of joining the ministry, the man would just turn and walk away, shoulder slump, head sagging. Peter, James, and John and the rest are left shaking their heads. Jesus, why did you have to go and do that? Why did you have to say that? Why did you have to run this guy off? So here's what happened. He showed up when Jesus and the twelve have, have begun, begun their descent. They're headed now toward Jerusalem. And he shows up to Jesus and he asks a very simple question. He says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, I'm going to interrupt the story right there. Again, I'm going to give some kudos here to this guy as a preacher. I want more people asking this question. I want more people to care about eternity, to care about issues of heaven and hell. So he comes and he's thinking about it. He's probably been thinking about this a long time. So he asks this question. And most young people, especially rich young people, this is the furthest thing from their mind. I mean, they care about a million other things before they get around to salvation, but before they get around to their eternal destiny. This guy is smart enough not only to ask uh, the right sort of question, but extra smart, he takes it to the exact right person to ask this question of the Son of God. So asking a great question, got enough sense to ask it the right teacher, and Jesus begins his response to this question. And what he does, you probably remember this, he just begun, begins to list some of the Ten Commandments. Okay? You know, no adultery, uh, do not steal, do not kill, that kind of stuff. No surprise. I mean, I think if we were to go out on the street today and you were to ask people, um, are you saved, are you lost? And people said, saved, why do you think you're saved? I think they would say generally one of two things. They'd say, uh, I'm a good person, so I'll be saved. Uh, or they might say, you know, I, I try to keep the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's pretty basic stuff. Um, so no surprise there. I don't steal. I don't lie. I haven't killed anybody today, so I think I'm doing okay. Uh, well, Jesus answered this again by beginning to list out these Ten Commandments. And that's when we find the young man cutting in. He's interrupting Jesus, and he's excited. He's eager. He says, I've been doing that since I was a kid. I've been obeying those commandments since I can remember. And Mark interjects here. This is so interesting. The other gospel writers do not put this in there. Mark interjects in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, this. Looking at the man, as soon as he interrupts and says, I've been doing that since I was a kid. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. I, I think you could just say, Jesus was moved. He felt something for this young man. And Matthew and Luke don't include that, just Mark. The guy says, Jesus, I've done all of this stuff since I was a kid. And Jesus just looks at him and just loves him, just loves him. That eagerness, I mean, just, I'm reading this, I'm thinking, this is the kind of eagerness, the optimism, the positivity. I've been doing all that since I was a kid that probably attracted people to this guy all the time, probably were some of the ingredients to his success. And maybe it's like, maybe it's like the 10-year-old boy, and this might have been you, I'm probably, probably some of us in this room were like this, but maybe it's the 10-year-old boy who is absolutely convinced he is going to be the next LeBron James. I mean, have you seen my jump shot? Have, have you seen my handles? Have you seen, you know, I mean, maybe it's that kid that is absolutely, positively, no doubt, 
going to be the next LeBron James, but anyone who knows the parents and who's seen the kid play knows that ain't going to happen. Beautiful confidence, beautiful optimism, but not going to happen. It makes me think of Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite, a truly pathetic... If you've seen them, just pathetic middle-aged man whose glory days were somewhere back in high school when he was the backup quarterback on the football team. That was the highlight of his life. And Uncle Rico gets this glimmer in his eye and he stares off in the distance at one point, now middle-aged, and he says, quote, How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over them mountains? <laughs> yeah, if coach would have put me in in the fourth quarter, we would have been state champions. No doubt, no doubt in my mind. <laughs> and so this young man, he's kind of going Uncle Rico here. He sees himself, he sees himself as godly. He sees himself as good. Um, he's sincere, but he's sincerely wrong in his self-appraisal. For him or for any of us, this question, so you think you're righteous enough, there's only one possible answer. You might as well try to throw a football over them mountains, right? You might as well try to take a running leap over the Grand Canyon. You are not, I am not, but Jesus hears this sincere young man's optimistic uh, assessment of his own <laughs> spirituality, and he's just like... Ah. He just loves this young man. Truth is, the young man is, is a sinner. He's a sinful wretch, like all of us. Needs the grace of God. I mean, how about just taking one of those commandments that Jesus says, false testimony, or thou shalt not lie. How about just taking that one, which the young man assures us he has kept since he was a small boy, I would just say, really? Really? You have never in your life deceived or told a lie or been dishonest. That has never, ever happened for you. Either we've got early onset Alzheimer's, okay? You're not remembering well. Or you just kind of have this blind self-appraisal where you don't... Rem I mean, it, it's off. It's just off. Um, now Jesus looks at the sincere guy who believes he's righteous and Jesus, remember, Jesus can read people's hearts. Jesus, there are no secrets to be kept from Jesus and Jesus knows you haven't even kept this one commandment. How many times have you broken this? Not to mention the other commandments that you've broken. You're not even coming close to fulfilling the obedience required, perfect obedience to get into heaven. However, I love this part of the story. However, this is a big however, our Lord does not look at sinners, even sinners, convinced they are not sinners. He doesn't look at them with disdain or scorn or hatred. Mark properly records he looks at them with love. Isn't that great? Jesus looks at this self-deceived man with his very off self-appraisal, and Jesus just loves him. And he loves him so much that he's not going to let him just kind of coast along 
and self-deception. There needs to be a speed bump, a rather large one, and so Jesus cares enough to level with him. Jesus can see what really is the obstacle to this man truly coming to faith in God. It is his faith in his money. That's, what he, that's where his security is. That's what he trusts in. So Jesus says something that is going to sadden the young man and is going to shock his disciples. He says to him, there is still one thing that you need to do. You got all this eagerness and expectation. There's still one. Okay, Jesus, what is that one thing? The one thing. Sell all of your possessions. Give the proceeds away to the poor. And then come and follow me. Jesus just says, give it all away. And the young man doesn't say a word. He turns and he leaves. I mean, what? If I'm a disciple, I'm thinking, what just happened? <laughs> I mean, Jesus did not, by the way, you may be thinking, Jesus did not normally tell people, go and sell everything. And follow me. That wasn't, that's something you're not going to find a lot in the Gospels, right? Um, So why did he say it here? Why does he say it to this person? The stunned disciples are certainly asking that question. Why would you mess this up, Jesus? Why would you say this to this guy when you haven't said it to the last 30 guys? And they're thinking, if somebody like this can't be saved... Who can be saved? And the Lord had to and still has to lay bare the reality for you and for me and for anyone who seeks His grace. He has to lay bare the truth that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that we can do to save ourselves. We cannot do it. There is nothing but the grace of God that can save us from the fires of hell and deliver us safe to the arms of the Lord. To trust in something other than God's grace is folly. It could be money. It could be your own winsome personality, your skill set, your network, your own goodness, the the amount you give to charity or the number of good works that you've done over your life. It could be any, any of that stuff. None of that is going to get you saved to trust something other than God's grace for your salvation is folly. Now Jesus saw that the man had put his foundations around, the the thing that he built his life around and his hope and his confidence around his money, uh, his confidence was in his capital, his, his trust in his treasure, his faith in his finances. That was his one thing. I don't know what your one thing is, but... Jesus knows what the one thing is that is his greatest rival for your faith, for your affections, that one thing that you tend to lean into, that you tend to put trust in. So what is it? I mean, 
Maybe you're like this guy, you're just not self-aware and you're going to need somebody to help you with this. But what is that one thing? I mean, you respect Jesus, you like Jesus, maybe you even love Jesus. So what's the one thing that you have had trouble turning loose of? Or let's put it this way, what would you have trouble turning loose of if Jesus says there's just one thing you need to turn loose of this? What would that be for you? And there you will find... In your answer, your personal greatest challenge to trusting in Jesus, to trusting in the cross, to trusting that gospel story. Jesus turned to his disciples. After this young man walked away, and Jesus looks at them and he says, It is hard, very hard. For a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It is very, very hard. And Mark says that the disciples were, quote, astounded because they're thinking, verse 26, then who in the world can be saved? What are we doing going around preaching to everybody if no one can be saved? And you can feel the despair and you can feel the tension ratcheting up and Jesus is doing nothing to turn down the heat. If a good man who cares about the Bible, who comes to Jesus, asks a sincere question, who who God has obviously blessed, at least in financial terms, if somebody like this is not right with God and is not saved, then who can be? And the answer, here we go. Jesus, verse 27, Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, why don't you read this with me? Humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Now say that with me. Everything is possible with God. Amen? We believe that. Everything is possible with God. So Jesus... I've talked about this before. It's kind of funny if you just kind of think about this as you read the Gospels. Jesus routinely walks around asking people to do the impossible. Right? He routinely walks around and asks people to do the one thing that it looks impossible for them to do. He asks the blind man, open your eyes and see. He asks the impossible of a blind man. He asks the paralyzed man, my son, get up, take your mat, go home. Right? He asks the man in the synagogue with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. Jesus smiles as he asks us to do impossible things because with God, nothing is impossible. And I don't know where we ever got the idea or anyone could ever get the idea that salvation is anything less than a miracle of God. It's impossible. But because of Jesus, because of the gospel, 
because God made your salvation his own personal project, the impossible became possible. Verses 26 to 27. Let's get some crowd reaction here. Verses 26 to 27. Put this in context. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved? They asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, it is impossible, but with God, everything is possible with God. Now, the young man, I'm going I'm to give him this. I'm going to give him credit, partial credit here. He gets something right here, and that is salvation hinges on obedience. I'm going to give it, you're thinking, wait, what are you talking about, Gordon? You just said grace. No, your salvation, our salvation hinges on obedience, just not our obedience. Paul said in Romans 3.23, there is no one righteous, no not one. Our hope of heaven, it will be determined by obedience. There is no question about that. The only question is this. Will you put your faith in your obedience or in his obedience? Will you trust in your work or will you trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ? That's really the only question. Years ago, a very good friend of mine and Isla Years ago, she was enrolling at a Christian college, a fairly expensive Christian college, and she left her, her humble home, said goodbye to her parents somewhere in eastern Oklahoma, around Shoto, got in her car, and she headed off to college, got on campus. One of the things you need to do is check in with the business office and make sure you've either paid up or you've got some sort of plan. I hear nowadays they make sure you've got all this in order before you show up on campus. But back then, show up at the business office and make sure you are either paid up or there is a plan in place to get you paid up. She goes to the business office, right? And she pulls out her ID. She waits in line. She gets up. It's her turn. She pulls out her ID. Her name is Maggie Phelps. She hands over her, her ID card. The lady clicks on the computer, looks her up, and says, Honey, you don't owe anything. You're all paid up. And I mean, she is very confused because she is positive they haven't paid anything yet. She's positive she owes quite a bit. And she was shocked. She was thrilled to hear that she didn't owe anything, but she had absolutely no idea how it was that she didn't know anything. It didn't take long for the mystery to be solved. The university had offered a basketball scholarship to Maggie Phelps. Not her, but another Maggie Phelps. And this other Maggie Phelps, as it turned out, had chosen to accept an offer from another university, so she was not going to be there on campus. And somehow, some way, that money was in the system. It was locked in there. True story. And it got applied to my friend. Now, my Maggie Phelps is a four foot nine Vietnamese girl. Seriously, she is. <laughs> She is. 
Her skill set is a culinary skill set, not a basketball skill set. And she had never played basketball before. And so she goes back to the business office. And she is going to report this mistake. And the woman who helped her said, Honey, that scholarship money, it's already been dispersed. It's in your account. Just accept it and move on. <laughs> True story, which is why I've changed the name, all right? Don't want this to get back on her someday, get her to get an invoice or something. <laughs> your eternal destiny will be determined by obedience, either yours or his. The gospel says this. It says the perfect righteousness of Jesus has been credited to your account. His goodness, his godliness, credited to your account. You owe nothing. It's not like Jesus pays 90% and you've got to kick in the last 10%, okay? He paid 100%. Now, God's grace means that salvation is a free gift to you based on the work of Christ. When you arrive in heaven someday, you won't have to worry about how you're going to pay for it. You won't have to meet with the angels to come up with your payment plan or anything like that. Jesus took care of it. Now, I want to ask one final question. I was going to stop here, but I just want to ask one final question. Because I think a lot of people have this question. Okay, we're saved by grace. We're saved by His obedience, not our own. And a lot of people do the math and go, wait a second, then why would anyone be good? Paul asked that question rhetorically in Romans 6 verse 1. Why would anyone stop sinning? And I would ask you this. Do you think, for my friend Maggie, that the fact that that had been paid for on her behalf, so she, because of that she wasn't motivated to go to class, Right? Because of that, she wasn't motivated to try. Because of that, she didn't care as much. I'll tell you, that's not how that worked out. She worked like crazy to get on the honor road, to have her grades up at top. She worked harder. And when you understand the debt that you owed and that was paid off, you don't try less. You want to honor that. You want to give your life for that. You want to invest your life in sharing that, that story with other people. You do more. You do more. Obedience flows out of an understanding of God's grace. This morning, if you'd like to put your faith in that, if you want to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, you can do that. You can cross that line of faith. Be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit to receive forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and to, be, and to accept what was credited to your account at the cross. You can do that. Maybe you just need prayers. Let's respond as together we stand and we sing.